Hi and welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, tax depreciation super nerd from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Now, commercial property has been getting a lot more interest and attention from property investors, so we've found an expert to chat to about all things commercial. Today, we're interviewing Mish Daniel, founder of Revolve Commercial. Now, Mish has a fantastic background origin story that I just had to dive in about her time in South Africa and fleeing to come to Australia. So we dive into that and we talk to her about all of the pros and cons about commercial property investing, how to do due diligence and everything that I think you need to know as a commercial property investor to succeed in your investing. Here's Mish. Mish Daniels, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Hi, Mike. Lovely to be here. Thank you for the invite. It's been a long time coming. I've been sort of following you from afar. Sounds a bit creepy when I say it out loud, Uh, but a big fan of your work. Now, uh, it'd be remiss of me not to sort of ask the question about, you know, who you are and where you come from. So the, the old version of Geared for Growth, we went into much more detail about the individual. Um, And I'm kind of uh, lamenting that we've changed the format just by virtue of the story that you've got. So can you tell us a little bit about your your background uh, overseas and coming to Australia, what life was like before and and your transition into into your life down under? Well, Mike, I hope you've got about four hours for this interview. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, just starting out, um, born in, in South Africa, Johannesburg, Left Johannesburg at a very young age, always hated the city, wanted to get out of there, Uh, left at about 18, moved south into Cape Town, which was my dream city. I always wanted to live uh, close to the ocean with huge mountains, and that's uh, where I found myself. And I pretty much moved down there with nothing, with a motorcycle and 20 bucks in my pocket. That was uh, pretty (laughs) rock and roll, yes. (laughs) Growing up and going through school, I was always building stuff. My father was actually started out as a builder, ended up as a a draftsman, went into architecture, that sort of stuff. And funny enough, my mother was a dressmaker. And so I was forced to learn how to use a sewing machine. But at the same time, my interest was always working with dad on the tools in the garage, which was actually quite fortunate because uh, it led me in both those directions later in my life. When I moved down to Cape Town, um, I had worked in an advertising agency for a while, been quite creative, did fairly well, freelance down there for a bit, and then uh, went off and did my my own thing. Hitchhiked around the world for uh, about a year or two, came back and decided, right, it's time to get serious about life, and started working in the first promotional factory, so clothing promotional clothing and then later went on to take that over and I built up uh, huge factories so by the time I left South Africa I had 400 staff and I was running three factories um and (laughs) absolutely amazing (laughs) yeah well that's that's the short version (laughs) yeah I I really feel underqualified for this you need like a Richard Feidler type to really sort of tease out your your story but I mean just we obviously spoke a month or so ago. I was just absolutely amazed by the amount of living that you've done. And I mean, that's all sounds fantastic to that point, but things got sort of a little bit rough, obviously, over there. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, huge responsibilities, uh, 18 hours a day, three factories, uh, and they were all integrated. And while this was happening, I had interest in, in the properties and I started buying properties at the age of 22. So I started the businesses and I always loved property and I thought, well, nobody's going to look after me in my old age, so I better look after myself. And having spent a lot of time with my father uh, as a kid, we used to go and look at show houses on Sundays that was our pastime. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he always used to say to me, look beyond the walls because you can always turn ugly into something beautiful by removing walls and removing walls is cheap. So he taught me to turn properties around. And at the age of 22, I started buying properties that I could see potential by if I removed a wall, I could make an open plan um, uh, environment. So I started with uh, residential. And I can say that every single property that I bought, I pretty much did the same thing, added tremendous value. And I was doing this while I was busy running the factory. So the property was sort of like the sideline. But it was it was quite funny because um, my driver, I'd send my driver out to go and collect fabrics and trims and buttons and, and all sorts of things. And I'd say to once you drop those off, once you deliver those, please go around to the hardware and collect concrete and, and lintels and uh, support beams and trusses <laughs> and drop them off at that site. <laughs> you had a fair bit going on. Yeah. So people used to ask me, how do you do this? And I said, well, it's very simple. You know, I've got I've got a driver. He does he does my factory work in the morning and he does the development work in the afternoon. You know, so I was kind of swinging those two. But um yeah, that was all good and well. And it kind of came to a head when I'm going to say the war started in Cape Town mm -hmm. because uh, South Africa had been undergoing kind of the, the underground war for quite a long time. And I think I moved away from it when I was very young, but it kind of moved south and um, just crime and uh, attacking um, that was just ramping up where I was. And cut a long story short, and I don't know if you want me to go into it. I think we've chatted about it before. I was basically held up four times, landed up in a wheelchair, had to learn how to walk again. Took me three years to learn how to how to walk. I, I've never run as fast as what I used to. <laughs> <laughs> and within that period, my factory actually burned down. So uh, arson attack and, and burned down. I was busy doing one of the biggest contracts in the country, which was um, about twenty two thousand garments going out to Caltex National. So it was really a massive contract. And I had to dance on my feet. And within three days, the factory was burnt. It was gone. We salvaged as much as we could. Fortunately, I still had a lot of fab fabrics that were coming in. We redid. And uh, I was very, very lucky that some of the patterns in that were on digital. And we factored that out to various other factories. So um, it changed the way that I ran the business and all my teams, my staff, I basically factored them out to seven other factories to make that delivery. And we delivered that job on time. Oh, wow. I mean, that's incredible. No one <laughs> would blame you for just kind of saying everything's burnt down. Like we can't, we can't deliver. We deliver this, you know, but to be able to look after yourself and get the order done, I think is a testament to your personality. <laughs> There was no option. There was absolutely no option. I was so heavily invested in that. I just rolled up my sleeves and I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to collaborate like I've never collaborated in my life before. I think we probably went through about 20 or 30 factories. 
and we worked with them. And I got my staff in there, whatever machines we could salvage, we got into their factories and we just got them working again. And I literally moved from one factory to the next, just overseeing production nonstop. And all my, my senior management staff, I just factored them out to all the various different factories as well. And we, we, we just ran it that way. You know. It was pretty incredible. And I suppose you got to the point where with the property portfolio, you know, you were doing the residential stuff, you had a very good knowledge of commercial with the factories, a very successful business person, and I assume on a pretty comfortable wicket, but things were kind of setting fire around you with the violence of the situation. Where, where did it get to the point where you kind of thought this, this is untenable, we, we need to leave? I think it was probably, um, we were starting a family and um, I had two beautiful little little girls at that stage. My my eldest daughter was about three and a half years old, and my youngest had just been born. And I just got home, was reading a book to my eldest. She was sitting on my lap. I'll never forget the day and where I was. And I got a phone call to say that your factory is burning. It's on fire. And I thought, mm, this can't be right, but let me go and check. So I tucked her aside and said, Mommy will be back in five minutes. And I jumped in the car and I flew down to the factory. And by the time I got there, the flames were three times the height of the actual building itself. Gosh. It took 11 fire trucks and three days to put that fire out. And if you think about it, it was nylon. It was being fueled by nylon and by oil in all of the machines. The steel just melted. The steel roof just melted. It was unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. So we basically worked flat out on that, salvaging as much as we could. And by the time I got home, it was the next day. And I thought about this and I just thought, "Things things are not, I'm getting signals. I'm getting signs from the universe to make a change. I need to do something different with my life. And at the same time, I got an invitation to come to a wedding in Australia. Now, I had been traveling to Australia uh, back and forth. I'd be consulting for a company out here. So I'd been out, I'd been out a couple of times. However, this was um, a wedding that I came to. And I remember the afternoon I was sitting in a park. It was around about just after three o'clock. And these two little boys came past me with their satchels on their back, push, pushing their bicycles. And I looked at them and I thought, gee, my girls are never, ever going to know what that feels like. Yeah. Because we were living under such heavy security. We had three security companies that would patrol nonstop, you know, that we would have escorts going home if it was late at night. I mean, we just lived under security, security, security. And just shortly before that, we were in a botanical gardens and there was a shootout outside of the botanical gardens but the bullets came through the trees and I was there with the kids and we all hit the deck. Fortunately, nobody was injured besides people with lots of fatalities on the outside of those trees. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's unfair of me to, to think that my kids could survive. I've survived it, but I've got the opportunity. I'd been offered an opportunity to move to Australia and it was. It really was a huge, huge decision because I knew that by moving here, I would have to give up my entire lifestyle, everything that I'd built up, all the properties. <clears throat> we had 29 properties. I was 45 years old and I was, I was semi-retired. You know, I had got to a stage where I was running those factories, probably working on the business three to four hours a day. And I knew that um, by giving it all up, I'd be starting from ground zero in Australia. And plus the Rand dollar exchange rate was 
10 to 1. <laughs> yeah. So e even with that exchange, with the 29 properties and the business that you've built, uh, explain why you weren't able to sort of move to Australia and still be retired and live a comfortable life. What, what was sort of the, the difference financially landing in Australia to, to what you left? Well, let's just say that we lived like, like kings in South Africa. And the value of the money in South Africa was fantastic. It was because South Africa was, was relatively cheap in comparison. But when you're working on a ratio of 10 to 1, for every $1, it's worth 10 cents. Or, the, or if you look at it the other way around, for every 10 rands, it's worth $1. Yeah. So immediately you're losing 90% of your value. Yeah. And then once you go through the exchange, you lose an additional 2% in trading fees and selling off and building up again. So by the time we arrived here, we arrived with around about 8% of our wealth, okay? And to try and get that money out of South Africa took us six years. Wow. So when we arrived here, we arrived with four suitcases and we had enough money to just scrape through, uh, put a roof over our heads, and I had to literally start all over again. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. And I can imagine getting to that point where, you know, in, in your mid-40s, you're semi-retired. That's got to be a hit. But you were able to call on the kind of the effort that you put in over there and just roll up your sleeves and get stuck in again. So how did you get started in commercial property and property investing? Because the reason why I wanted to chat to you, of course, is to talk about commercial property in yeah. investing and how investors can get into it, what they need to know. How, how did you actually kick things off? Well, um, a lot of people said to me, um, what am I going to do when I come to Australia? And I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to do manufacturing because uh, it's not going to work the same. And I need to make a, make a change in my life. And these were the two things that life has given me. I'm fairly experienced and had been, had built up years of experience, 30 odd years of experience in doing uplift properties and through residential and then doing uplift properties in commercial. So in South Africa, we had a couple of commercial properties and we'd converted factories from, um, give you an example, it was an old can candle factory, very, very strange shape of a roof. But we converted that into 15 warehouses, which was, um, you know, just uh, what you would call strata titling over here. We would do yeah. subdivisions. And that was a huge uplift. So I had that experience from South Africa. And I thought, well, um, when I, uh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to stay in property. And I know that Australia is very property centric. And I thought initially I would I would go to residential and do the same sort of thing in residential. But when I started drilling down on the numbers, I realized that you put a lot of work into it um, and you really got to get lucky with the right property in the right area and the right zoning and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of a lot more. Um, to know and to learn, and when I when I drilled down on the numbers, I thought oh, this is really not not worth it. So I started looking further afield, 
And I can tell you, it was almost like I was really scratching my head because I thought, oh, there's got to be something else, got to be something else. And then somebody said to me, what about commercial? And I thought, ding, yeah, what about commercial? And I started looking at commercial. I thought, this is this is a no-brainer. We're starting out with 7 and 8% yields. And um, that was it. I just started buying commercial property, leveraging wherever I possibly could. And by that stage, we were starting to get a little bit more money treacle through, although it was at, at by that stage, it was about 1 to 11. So the money was worth less and um, started building up a portfolio. It's interesting you talk about, say, residential having to get lucky. You know, if you think about the yields, you know, a good yield is going to be maybe a little bit cash flow positive, but it's not really enough to to kind of quit your job, for example, it really comes in the equity and, you, you know, you've got to, you've got to find those areas where you're going to have the growth and you've got to understand the drivers and there is a bit of luck involved as well. But do you see commercial as a little bit more of a business sort of thing where it's more about the numbers, the cash flow, the net yields are, are much higher. So there's maybe in, in some respects, less moving parts that are outside of your control. Yes and no. I think commercial is a far more difficult acquisition. For me, it was second nature because I come from a business background and I'd I'd worked my way through business and also I've I've learned to understand commercial a lot more. So um, buying residential, I'm going to say is very easy. The problem with buying uh, residential is everybody's doing it because it's so easy. And if you're not buying the right type of commercial in the right area, as you so rightly said, in an area that is gentrifying or growing where you're going to get market growth, you're fairly limited if you don't know how to add value to those properties. And what I found is it was very expensive to add value to those properties because generally You'd be finding buying a house that's maybe on on fairly large land and you're starting off by cleaning the house up, putting new kitchens and bathrooms in. And before you know it, you've gone over your budget. Yeah. Whereas if you're spending the same kind of money in a commercial property, yes, your entry level is a little bit higher and your leverage is lower. So, I mean, if you're buying a residential house, you're probably getting an 80% uh, LVR on it. Whereas if you're buying a commercial, you're getting between 60 to 70%, depending on your serviceability. But you don't have expensive bathrooms and kitchens to go and redo. You know, you can get in there. And so long as you're doing your due diligence correctly, so long as you, you know what's happening in the area, so long as you can see that there's a demand for certain types of businesses, tenancies, uh, and a lot of that has changed over the last uh, seven years that I've been doing this. You know, you really have to drill down, know your numbers, run the, the, the correct spreadsheets in order to make either chunk deal or good cash flow out of it. Can you talk us through a bit of an example? Let's say someone comes to you and says, Mish, you know, I've invested in residential before. I've got um, a modest portfolio, but I really want to get into commercial, but I'm, you know, worried about the risks. You know, what sort of property could I get where vacancies, you know, not going to be a big problem and I am going to get a reasonable yield, you know, without having to spend one or two million dollars. What what would a commercial property like that look like? And would you even recommend uh, a commercial to someone at that level? I'm going to say to people that they shouldn't be getting into commercial unless they've got about 200,000. You know, they, they can get into, into commercials um, and at around about 100,000, but it's it's really going to be base entry level and that's probably going to be strata office. 
where you've got to be looking hard and buying the right stuff. And at the moment, we know what's happening in Strata office of, after COVID-19. It's uh, debatable. Yeah. So at around about 200,000, uh, you could get into a property and conservatively, I'm going to say at around about five to 600,000, which uh, you should be shooting for about a 67% um, yield on that property. And realistically, if, you, if you're buying a property for less than 6% yield, if it hasn't got that growth within the first 12 months, I'm going to say, don't waste your time. Just go and buy residential property. So yeah. you really want to be looking for something that is going to give you the leverage, that's going to give you the growth, that's going to give you the cash flow. These properties are around. They have become increasingly more difficult to lay your hands on. And again, drill down, look at the property, because there are a lot of properties on the market. And only I'm going to say 10% of them are okay. And 2% of them are maybe good. You know, so, so it's a lot of hunting, it's a lot of looking, and you've got to go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of properties to find the golden jewel. So when it comes to finding one of these golden commercial properties, Obviously, we've talked about the net yield. It's got to be a solid net yield or there's got to be some obvious upside for, for capital growth. But the moving parts are, are going to be things like the lease such as it is at the moment and rental increases and, and those sorts of things. What are, what are some of the, the key due diligence things that are specific to commercial as, as distinct from residential? Well, look, in residential, I always say you've got two areas of due diligence. You've got your area and you've got your building structure itself. So building and pest, yeah. building, that sort of thing. In commercial, you've got at least six areas. So you're looking at building, you're looking at, at area, you're looking at the gentrification that's happening around there. You're looking at, at the desirability of the type of business. And should your tenant vacate, what type of business would be attracted to that building? to come in. So we call it exit strategies. What would your exit strategies be? The other thing that we look at is, can you divvy that premises into various different um, smaller uh, tenancies? So in other words, let's take a tilt slab warehouse, for instance. Has it got a mezzanine floor? How many roller shutter doors does it have? Can you put walls up and have four tenants in one in that in that um, uh, factory, okay, for argument's sake. So we look at how many doors, and then additionally, we would look at the legal side of it. Uh, so who's the tenant that's currently in there? What does the lease look like? Are there incremental increases? When is the rental review? Where is the tenant on that cycle of rental review? So the whole legal aspect of their business, how well have they been trading? Have they done through COVID? Do they want to stay in that? Is their business growing? Is it shrinking? You know, is it is it an upcoming business or is it an old-fashioned business? So there's there's a whole lot of I would say there's over a thousand points of due diligence that we would look into business specific and building specific as well. It's it's amazing how much there is really in commercial. I mean, before I was kind of saying, oh look, with Resi, you've got to have you know a, a bit of luck. Whereas commercial, it's like a business, but understanding that business is it's a sophisticated process and I would encourage residential investors wanting to get into commercial to not attempt it themselves. There's a lot of skill involved, right? And I wanted to ask you about, there's things that you need to consider with commercial that you don't with residential. Say, for example, the changing face 
place of of work such as it is. So for example, people are working from home. So maybe there's less demand for offices. Um, you talked about kind of the, the versatility. I'm wondering, you know, are you going to the point of, of even looking at, say, the success of the, the businesses that tenants run? Is that part of the due diligence as well? Like looking at, you know, are they competitive in the marketplace or are they likely to potentially need to to vacate the premises absolutely that is that is the i would say that is the key to uh to purchasing the property so we do various different strategies where one of our uplift strategy would be to find a property where a tenant is vacating and we do that for various different reasons but ideally so we've got strategy one two three And then we go into development and that sort of stuff. So strategy one, what we call the vanilla strategy, would be for your, generally for your inexperienced investor who doesn't know anything about commercial, just wants to get their their foot into commercial and um, don't look at uplift, just look at cash flow and a solid tenant. All right. So you're looking at at a tenant that's depending on which uh, category you're in, budget you're in, whether it's a million, two, three, four million would be uh, a set and forget property where you're getting a good solid lease for let's say five years and with a three or a four percent incremental increase and happy days that you would be focusing on the tenant besides the building you obviously got to do all the due diligence on the building and the area and that sort of thing but you you'd, you'd really drill deep into the tenant themselves their stability and their business when it comes to the value of the commercial property, let's say you take residential investors, they purchase a property, they get some success in capital growth, they can get the bank in, revalue, pull the equity and go again. With commercial properties, I'm assuming that there are situations where the value of that property can you know, drop by 30% or maybe a half, depending on the tenants and the lease in place. What, what are some of the things that you need to be careful with, with there that really influence the value of that asset on paper to, to say, the eyes of a bank? Very interesting, Mike, because you're talking about dropping the value. Uh, when I look at a commercial property, I only look at increasing the value. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so we would often uh, purchase properties where we can see that the um, that the leases haven't been very well looked after, that the tenants haven't been well looked after. And, and often what happens is you might have a vendor that's had that property for 20 years or 30 years or something, or even shorter than that, 10 years, but they're clueless with regards to how to handle the tenant and how to handle the leases. So they make a total botch up of the leases and the tenants. So the tenants are wanting to leave, they're unhappy, whatever it is. To me, I see that as an opportunity. And we go in and we clean up those tenancies, we clean up those leases, we add value to the tenants. And by virtue of the fact that we're adding value to the tenants, we're adding value to the building. By adding value to the building, we're adding value to the leases. So we'll renegotiate leases, we'll get them onto market leases. And by virtue of the fact that we're doing all of those areas, the value of the building goes up. Now, this is the biggest difference between residential and commercial, because in residential, you cannot go in and clean up a lease and give tenants security and add value to your your asset, where in commercial, it's all about working with tenants and adding value to them, adding value to your lease. And by virtue of the fact that you're doing that, 
you are increasing the value of your building. So a commercial property is valued by the cash flow that it's going to be putting into your pocket. And I'll give you a little example of, of how this works and what we do. Um, I, I, work, I do this quite a lot in the retail space where we would buy a shopping center of, let's say, seven or ten tenants where the tenants are a little bit disgruntled, haven't had a great time, the vendor hasn't been great to them, the vendor hasn't been looking after the building, tiles are falling off the roof and aircon's breaking down, that sort of thing. We would go and we'd buy that property at a um, relatively, I would say, distressed, uh, we, we look for distressed properties. Okay, yeah. so we buy that property as a distressed property and we would sort out all of those issues, replace aircon, sliding doors, uh, fix all that up, and then we'd go through the leases and uh, speak to the tenants and secure those tenants back into good leases. And by doing that, you're raising your rent, you're raising your value. So we can reevaluate those properties, and we have done them. In some instances, we've made um, the clients have walked away with a million bucks extra within 12 months. Wow. That's, that's, yeah. that's an amazing situation. Yeah. Uh, we're... Sorry, I, I am talking about uh, properties that are in the two or three million dollar range. Um, yes, but but you're raising the value by about thirty percent. Yeah, no, I assumed I assumed as much, but I mean that's that's still an incredible thing that you can do. That's not necessarily available to residential. Of course, we talked about no. being able to do renovations and that sort of thing, but you you pretty limited in what you can do and you know to be able to get say two dollars for every dollar that you spent might be as good as it gets um so that's pretty impressive yeah. uh we are gone we've gone sort of way over time but i'm having way too much fun and i just think you're um a great person to chat to and i love you know hearing your story it's just really incredible we've got so much in australia that we just kind of take for granted yes. but um <laughs> before we wrap up can you give us an example of the types of, of properties um that you're purchasing so you talked about ones where they've got that versatility right so if it's a if it's a warehouse that can be converted into it could be maybe like a mechanic or it could be an office it could be multi-tenant during covid a lot of people were looking at well what are the kind of recession proof style commercial properties and i know medical centers went up uh, in value a lot because they're kind of recession proof what what are some of the key ones that you you kind of see as always being in demand you know in the current market it's changing so much at the moment and yes uh, medical has always been been probably at the top of the, the the pecking order, but then you've got you've got veterinary surgeons, you've got barbers shops, you've got uh, hairdressing, and I'm going to say personal services. A lot of personal services that um, in these sort of times, people you know they're not feeling good about themselves, so they want to go out there and make themselves feel good. So uh, bottle shops, for instance, uh, they never lose lose favour in these times. And then you've got your food stores. So your restaurants, um, Asian kitchens, um, uh, takeaways, fast food, those, um, and, and during COVID times, for instance, yes, they did hit a dip initially, but those, the takeaway sections, the takeaway parts of those good restaurants bounced back incredibly fast. Right. A lot of people were saying, Mish, you've got to be crazy. Why are you buying retail at this stage? And I, and I was saying, how oh, retail is fantastic because in retail, you can have a multitude of various different types of businesses and they're supportive of each other. And if you lose two out of 10, you've still got eight to look after you. Yeah. 
and then industrial, same sort of thing in industrial, something that is, we were, we were buying um, industrial factories that were doing manufacturing trailers, uh, caravans, uh, sports equipment, couldn't, couldn't do them fast enough, camping equipment, you know. Yeah. There's just not enough space for these guys in, um, in tilt slab factories. That's gone absolutely gangbusters with, you know, things like you know, trying to get a caravan or a little boat um, during COVID. A lot of people were planning their holidays domestically because we kind of didn't have a choice. And there's certainly some people that lost money during COVID and some retail businesses that have suffered, but a lot of people have done really quite well. And the, the holiday money that they had budgeted aside was just kind of burning a hole in their pocket. So there's a lot of toys being, being purchased. Yeah, so that's interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a very interesting space and place and just watching. And I think a lot of those businesses people would have expected would have folded, but in fact they've done a hell of a lot better. You know? I did not yeah, I did not expect to hear you talking about retail as a as a good commercial investment, but not all retail is created equal. Obviously, we've heard a lot about some of these restaurants and coffee shops having to to shut down and you know coffee is a difficult thing to deliver but there's also mm. all of these kitchens and and even these these dark kitchens that we hear about that aren't sort of front facing but they're you know servicing the the what is it the uber eat style market there's a lot of opportunities there right yeah so long as it's so long as it's takeaway and it's um i, I want to say transient um, and it's very much a matter of checking who the vendor is because it's it's at the time we were looking at uh, we had a, a couple of retailers and the ones that wanted an opportunity to get out of the business used COVID to do that. Whereas I would say the ones who saw the opportunity and thought, gee, we can ramp up our business, let's see how we can make how we can get on board and and turn our business into something more than what it was. They've gone gangbusters. Yeah, you know? there's, a real, so, yeah. there's been quite a few sort of forced experiments with COVID, hasn't there? It's yes. kind of forced people to change <laughs> up their model and a lot of people will actually be sort of long-term beneficiaries of that. If, um, just to, to wrap us up, Mish, if there's, let's say, three points um, that you would want to drill into the brain of someone that's getting into commercial and looking at purchasing their, their first commercial property, what are the things that you really think they need to know? Most definitely, I would say it's it's they need to have the right team. Okay, so straight away, I would say due diligence. You need to you need to know what to look for in due diligence, and make sure that you have a good solicitor, and preferably a commercial solicitor because um, residential solicitors and commercial solicitors huge difference. Yeah, um, you know. So yeah, most certainly make sure that you have the right team, and when you go into lending make sure that you have a commercial specialist or commercial lender get help don't try and do this alone i've seen so many people try and do this alone get help and listen to your professionals beautiful i think that's awesome advice and uh there's a lot more we can we can cover mish so i'd love to have you back at another point in time but thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom thanks mike been uh, great chatting cheers yeah.